I just took my first sip of coffee of the day. <laughs> so the day. just Enjoyment. give you hello. <laughs> wow. Late starter this morning. I had to get up and get ready. I have to be, be, be beautiful for the podcast, Brian. It takes a long time for the, to put this package together. Yeah, I can believe that. <laughs> you have a face for radio, I, I take it. He does oh, yeah. indeed, oh, yeah. Hey, 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 hey. <laughs> There's a room full of faces for radio. <laughs> This is the AT Banter Podcast, a balanced and entertaining look at assistive technology, accessibility, and its importance in people's lives. Join Rob Minot, Ryan Flurry, and Steve Barclay as they banter with people around the world about anything and everything regarding assistive technology and the disability community. Now, on with the show. Hey, and welcome to another episode of AT Banter. Banter, banter. My name is Rob Minot. Today, joining me as usual, Mr. Ryan Flurry. I'm Ryan Flurry. And Mr. Steve Barkley. And apparently, I am Mr. Steve Barkley. And Mr. Cowbell. <laughs> Whoa. Uh, that, that, that was, that was, that was, that was not a solid. That was great. <laughs> he struck it once and got two dongs out of he it. He would not be able to do that again if he tried. <laughs> nope. Oh, nope. Yeah. <laughs> uh, how are we today? How was your weekend? Mine was okay. That's it? Yeah. Yeah, Steve? Yeah. Mine was excellent. Got the dog out for a walk around Burnaby Lake. Took the dog in for a bath after the walk around Burnaby Lake because you know, that was a muddy dog. <laughs> and uh, what else did we do? Oh, we saw Captain Marvel. Oh yeah, and and you enjoyed it? Fabulous. Yeah. Yeah. Probably probably the best movie Marvel movie I've seen. Really? What? I would really? say so. Yeah. Really? And yep. you've seen them all? I'm assuming. Uh, yep. Yeah. Really? So far, it's yeah. better than Infinity War. I think so. Yeah. Wow, yeah, that's that is high praise. Well, I, I haven't actually seen it yet, but uh, I probably this week I'll get out to to see it. Man, wow, I'm excited. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I had a bummer of a weekend. What? Oh, I watched this. I watched that Leaving Neverland. Oh, did you? Oh, I want to see that. One of the big things I've I've been you know hearing on the radio is you know radio stations are starting to you know stop playing. Michael Jackson music because of that documentary and that just kind of infuriated me. The guy was brilliant. Uh, well, yeah, I guess what bummed me out about it, um, and not to get too far in the weeds, mm -hmm. but we might as well talk about it. Um, I, I think the emphasis is going to fall in the wrong, in all the wrong places. You know, I, 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 as I watched the documentary, I watched the Oprah special, that aired after the documentary and it's a four hour documentary. Wow. It's, it's you know, it's, it's, it goes into a lot of detail and it's, mm -hmm. it's all about these two guys. Mm -hmm. Um, and really it's an examination of what, what abuse looks like and how it plays out throughout somebody's life. Um, and I feel like that, that conversation and that fact gets lost in, this argument of the people who are in the Michael Jackson camp and are saying, you know, oh, this, it's, this is just a money grab. Right. It's all fake. And the camp 
of people who who believe these guys and it's just going to be an online argument of these two tribes mm -hmm. fighting it out and then in a couple of weeks people will forget about yeah. it and it's just gonna and, and that's that's the shame i mean because it could could have really been uh, an important conversation about um, abuse and you know no matter where you fall on that spectrum of if you're a michael and, and i understand like for if you're a michael a, long, a lifelong michael jackson fan uh this is going to be hard for you to to reconcile um you know because I, I can't see anyone with an open mind who watches this documentary and and really looks at things um from a from an outside point of view it's pretty it's pretty hard to really say that this didn't happen right and you and i dare anybody to watch this documentary and tell me that these two guys have did not suffer abuse mm. i mean this this one guy every one of his interviews the guy looks tortured like he he looks he's suffering and you know the documentary doesn't end on a happy note it's not like it ends mm -hmm. with and, and now these two guys are, are doing great right now they're they're still suffering through it and you know the real the real you know surprising thing about it is that for the longest time they didn't even think of it as abuse it's not like they were unwilling parties to all of it mm -hmm. you know as as kids they I mean they weren't able to process it and so it's just i don't know it's just it's it's a really intense bummer of a of a ride but i think it's an important one to to watch for sure and you know and in terms of you know whether or not michael jackson music should be banned i mean i i mean i don't necessarily think that either i don't know what the answer yeah, is I there i think either. it's an individual it's an individual choice i mean you have to take in the facts and you have to make your own decisions on whether or not you're going to want to mm -hmm. listen to michael jackson music whether that's going to affect your enjoyment of the music I don't know that it should be banned. I don't know if radio stations necessarily need to stop playing it. It's, you know, it's an individual choice, but I don't know. It, it's that whole argument of, of does, uh, you know, the, the artist doing something horrible invalidate their art. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and uh, it, it's something that's come up a bunch of times in the last while because of things like the me too movement yeah. mm -hmm. and we're finding out, you know, Hey, you know, a lot of these people who we worshiped as, as cultural icons, uh, they were actually dicks. Yeah. You know? Yeah. You know, Bill Cosby. You mm -hmm. know? Oh yeah, sure. That's Bill, another good Bill Cosby example. was roofing women left, right and center and, uh, you know, sexually abusing them. And he was a terrific comedian. Mm -hmm. God, yeah. You know, he was, he was a really terrific comedian. He was, you know, I remember as a kid laughing my ass off to, to Bill Cosby stuff, you know, should, should all of us, his stuff be banned because he was, you know, in real life, a jackass. Yeah. Uh, you know, um, that, that, that's, that's tough. You know, if, if we, if we invalidate the art because the artist is a jerk, where do we stop? You know, what if we find out Picasso was an asshole, you know? You know. Yeah. And I mean, I mean, honestly, I don't, I don't feel like I have a right to tell anybody else what right. they can get enjoyment out of. If they want to listen to beat it and still love it and dance around to it, who am I to tell them that they shouldn't be able to do that just because of Michael Jackson's personal life? Yeah. Michael you know? Jackson was a jerk, you know. <laughs> anyways, we went way off into the weeds on <laughs> yeah. that. Yep. Nothing to do with anything. But anyways, that, yeah, that was my, so I watched that and it just, it puts you in a weird, it puts you in a weird spot. Mood because it's like it's, it's four hours. Yeah, and it's I don't pretty know if intense. I could sit through that. Uh, all right.
Well, now that we've done that, uh, you guys want to do some news? News. Positively, Steve. <laughs> <laughs> Delta Airlines bans young puppies and kittens as support animals. What? Yes, great idea. Yeah. Where did you see this story? It's on CNN. Delta will ban service and emotional support animals under four months of age from all their flights beginning December 18th. The airline also announced Monday that they are prohibiting emotional support animals on flights that are over eight hours long. The changes appear to be partly intended to address animals relieving themselves on airplanes. <laughs> According to the airline. It's okay for people to do it. Inc- yes, no, it's not. Uh, according to the airline, incidents involving service and support animals, including urination, defecation, and biting, increased 84% from 2016 to 2017. Which kind of leads me to a discussion on were these actual certified support animals? At four months? Absolutely not. They're not. Exactly. There's no freaking way exactly. a four-month-old puppy nope. is an emotional, trained not emotional support. Exactly. Athlete. Trained, yeah. yeah. Not at all. Yeah, I don't see this as being much of a big deal. I mean, you know, again, I, I'm not too far, uh, you know, I, I don't know a lot of the details in terms of uh, well, a who huge... this affects. But I mean, under four, like who has a, has a, a support outcry. animal that's under four months old? Well, that's been a huge fiasco over the last couple of years is people taking any animal on claiming it's a support animal and faking certifications. Yeah. Um, you know, this is a big deal. This is my emotional support peacock. Yeah. Crazy. Well, you know, and, and a lot of it is to probably knowing people, uh, you know, it's to to uh, avoid the $125 charge that they would normally get. <laughs> You know, in in having their animal fly with them, yeah. uh, you know, if they say it's a support animal, of course it it flies for free. So I don't I don't see this as being unreasonable on behalf of the airlines. Uh, I, I mean, it really would only affect a, a small portion. I mean, maybe the bigger deal about it is the ban on having a support animal that's on a flight longer than eight hours. But uh, that could be a, that could be a problem for some people. Like if you want to fly to, I don't know, uh, Europe. Like how what what's that flight? Like what's the longest flight you've been on, Steve? Uh, probably the flight to Australia. And so what's that? Is that more than eight hours? Yeah. Yeah. So so for example, if someone wanted to fly to Australia with their guide dog, what do they do? You're not going to have a four month old guide dog. No, no, but but the ban is also on sub, on any support, any support animal, animal, any support on yeah. a flight over eight hours, any any emotional support animal. Okay, so the, see, a guide dog's not an emotional support. Animal. Uh, uh, no, we'll ban service and emotional support animals. Then I disagree with Delta's policy. Now, yeah, that I, might well, but but that would only. I'm assuming that that would only affect you if you had a direct flight, if you had like one stop flight from here to say australia that was 13 or something yeah so you would have to actually just split it up you'd have to you know fly to tokyo first i guess which but honestly that might be an issue because a direct flight is going to be a lot easier for somebody who's say visually impaired and has a service animal than uh, you know any sort of a stopover yep but but i don't know but what do you do with a a service animal, say, that's well, on a 13-hour flight. Where do they go to the bathroom? 
like how does that work yeah well obviously they, 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 they don't yeah they can't right there's nowhere for them to go unless you unless you took a training pad or something and had them relieve themselves on a training pad that would be about all you could do i think but i mean that's a that would, that's a long flight for a service mm-hmm. animal to not it is yeah so yeah. it's kind of even not fair to the service animal so i don't know maybe it's maybe it's not a, an unreasonable policy well, Ryan, you said you disagreed. Like, what do you what do you think? Well, you know, we've we've had reputable, recognized, service guide dog schools for decades, and I think this kind of not doesn't penalize them, but kind of puts them in a really difficult situation because we have people from around the world coming to these guide dog schools to get their trained certified dogs, and now they could be turned away at the airport because their flights over eight hours with their, or, with or their told service they dog. have to create their, their service dog or change their change their flight patterns yeah. right you know that's to me that's just creating a nightmare but so is, is is as you see it is that the problem like so if they came out and and you know you knew that when you booked your flight like if they told you if you went to like ryan wants to take a service animal to australia and they were like, okay, well, look, we can't book you on a, on a direct flight because of this. And, and everything was up front, so it didn't create any hassle. Would you be okay with it? Yeah, I think, you know, you, you make your arrangements and you, you, you go in with your eyes wide open. Um, but I think there's going to be a lot of pushback on this. You know, I don't have an issue with the, with the emotional support animals because I think that's just gotten way out of control. But the reputable service dog schools, you know, around the world... I think this is good. there's going to be pushback on this. Yeah, yeah. I, I think there needs to be because I think this policy is being made because of people abusing the system, and they need to deal with the abuse, not the uh, not the legitimate service right. animals. Well, they say that that the number of service animals on Delta flights have increased nearly 150 percent since 2015. Yeah. So it does make you wonder. Is like, well, why? What's with that bump? And it's. Well, it's they, probably because of the people who are trying to, you know, work the system. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, the, the criteria for saying that something's a service animal these days seems to be saying that it's something's a service animal. It's like this, this is my emotional support tortoise. You know, they, the, the, the airlines don't have the balls to say typically, uh, sorry, what now? Uh, well, and they get don't even that reptile have, into the into the hold. <laughs> well, and if you're checking into your flight, you know they don't even have the time to pick up the phone and call. Let's say a service dog, a service animal school, to say, you know, is is this a graduate of your class? Is this is this a certified animal? Well, you can print off a certificate on the internet right now. No, no, and no, well, not anymore because as of March, they've started asking all the passengers to um, show proof 48 hours before flying so that they have to show proof that it's in good health it's been vaccinated the 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 passenger has to sign a release form Mm. saying that the animal would behave and to produce a letter that's signed by a doctor um, or a licensed mental health professional certifying that it's either a comfort pet or a or a service animal so they're definitely cracking down on people trying to work the system from the sounds of it bonus so uh, but no, I guess, yeah, it should be interesting to see what, mm-hmm. what kind of pushback. Well, I'm glad they're cracking down on it. You know, don't get me wrong. I just, you know, I think it's going to take some time and it's, some figuring out. Yeah. It's, it's that, it's that policy of over eight hours that makes it, uh, I think that's the one that is a little, a little questionable. I mean, I can see the airline's point of view, 
But at the same time, uh, I don't know. And before we get letters, yes, I recognize that a turtle is an amphibian and not a reptile. <laughs> yes, because <laughs> that's what people will take away from that conversation. Okay, so this story is about uh, the state of accessibility in the TTC, which is the uh, the Toronto Transit Commission. Yeah. yeah. Uh, which was a little shocking to me, uh, given that, you know, Ontario has had the ADA uh, since, what, 2005? AODA. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry, the AODA. Yeah. Um, you know, they're supposed to be, you know, making the province completely accessible, and their their deadline is 2025. And this article is, is uh, written from the viewpoint of... Uh, of a young lady who has, I believe it's cerebral palsy and uses two canes to get around. And it discusses sort of the state of accessibility within the transit system. And it's a shockingly not great. Well, it's going to be accessible by 2025. You think so? I mean, like, so. so not if they run out of money, it won't. Listen, I mean, they, uh, where, where, where is that? Uh, listen, okay. The act was passed in 20, oh, sorry. The act was passed in 2005, but to date only 45 of Toronto's 75 subway stations are actually accessible. So how, so what's that been? 13 years? They, and they're less than halfway, or they're just over halfway. They, they got another six years to go. Uh, plenty of time. I, I I would disagree what's, with what's that. What's the issue here? <laughs> <laughs> Accessibility. Are you, are you playing devil's advocate? I mean, they're gonna be accessible by twenty twenty five. Come on, it's 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 only twenty years after the act was passed. You know, these things don't change overnight. They got to build elevators. This for goodness' sake, that's the, what they're uh, saying. Yeah, and sometimes is, not just one. This is a frustrating part about about this, this legislation, and I feel like we're poised to make the same mistake with with the uh, with the national legislation in the fact that you're gonna this uh -huh. is gonna come out. It's all about optics. It's all about yep. making making people feel good to make it look like you're doing something, but you're creating legislation that has no teeth, mm -hmm. that has no enforcement. And people aren't taking it seriously. And I'm sorry, this does not look like Ontario is taking this seriously, or at least the TTC uh, is taking it seriously because, you know, 13 years and you've just over half of the, uh, of the stations are accessible, not acceptable. Like that's just, it's not accessible, especially when all you have to do to make them accessible is build a, a friggin' elevator. And how much does that cost? I don't know. Well, I, I don't know. The article how much it costs, it says but... about like seven million dollars or something. Yeah. So, yeah, you're right. You know, there's 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 money involved here. Yeah. They've got a plan. They've they got to they've they got to budget shut. out. They can't just they can't just say instantaneously overnight we're going to put in elevators in every station because they don't have the money to do that. Well, and the article says too they can't you know close down stations because people have to get around right. They can't shut down the system. Yeah. The the one thing I took away from this article and it it just kind of bothered me. And I'm looking forward to our guest we have coming on in April who's actually mentioned in this article as well, Mr. David Lepofsky, is he talked about they fought to get audible announcements on SkyTrain buses and streetcars. Or, sorry, the, the TTC, you mean? Or the, you're talking about the subway system in, in... In Toronto. In Toronto, yeah. okay, yeah. You know, I don't know, they're not called SkyTrain, I don't know what the hell they call it. Well, them. yeah, it's the subway, subway system, the 
um, streetcars and buses. Ugh. You know, they fought to get audible announcements. Like, That's, why are we still having this discussion? Yeah, exactly. It should be implemented at the beginning. Like, just put it in. Well, and this, the thing that boggles my mind is that this is in a province that passed legislation. Yeah. Accessibility legislation. If you set like, a deadline of 2025 for when things have to get done, you can be guaranteed that in 2024, <laughs> they are going to be scrambling and complaining about oh, their short deadline. Yeah, you guarantee right. it. You're yeah. so right. And it's just, I guess that's human nature. But still, it's still, I mean, it's just, it's not access, uh, not acceptable and it's frustrating as hell to, to read an article like this because I had no idea. I mean, I thought mm -hmm. that, that because of this legislation, they, you know, they were ahead of the game. But clearly not. Well, well, they are because by the time we get the legislation in, the deadline for us to be accessible will be twenty forty five, and in well, twenty forty four, <laughs> <laughs> things are going to pick up. Everybody, <laughs> just hang in there. Yeah. Hang in there for another twenty years. Um, I don't know, but you know, yeah, I read articles like this and I, I just, I fear for the new legislation. So yeah, Ryan, it will be interesting to, to, uh, to get them on and, and yeah, well, there's two sides of that camp, right? There's some that are saying that, you know, um, a lot of amendments need to be put back into this Canadians with disabilities act before it even passes, because, you know, you, you listen to one side of the argument and they're saying, well, it has teeth, there's fines, but people don't follow them and blah, 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 blah. But then you got the others, you know, on the David Lepofsky side and others who are saying, well, no, we let's put this in now. Let's get these amendments back into this act so that we don't have to fight this after the fact. There's no point in passing a bill that has no teeth. Yeah. Right. It gives, it gives nobody an incentive to incorporate accessibility into anything. So let's do it right now. So it's going to be an interesting discussion. Absolutely. Well, and, you know, the scary part about this is that we're talking about the TTC. We're talking mm -hmm. about tr the transit system that should be the most accessible thing out there in our country. You would because think. this is something that that people with with uh, impairments that are need to use on a daily basis. Yep. Yeah. I mean, it's the busiest transit system in the world, right? Or in in Canada. Canada. Mm -hmm. um, and and yes, you're right. It is ridiculous that it's not accessible to everyone. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll we'll be keeping. We're we're watching you, Toronto. <laughs> we won't have a Ford in, in office in Toronto, in Ontario. Mm. The Fords will be gone. We'll see. Maybe. Maybe. Yeah. You know, there's no set term limit on <laughs> premier, right? Premier for life. <laughs> yeah. Uh -huh. They love that guy. Uh huh. Uh. Oh dear, Trump light. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, Steve, why don't you tell the fine folks about Canadian Assistive Technology? Well, Canadian Assistive Technology is a Canadian-based distributor of, guess what, Assistive Technology. I would not have guessed that. Uh, really? Oh, i got to work something better into the name then. <laughs> um, and uh, we do uh, all kinds of low vision and blindness aids, as well as all kinds of physical access aids and uh, accessible furniture, you name it. Visit our website at www.canastech.com. Rick, let me ask you about this. Chaos Technical Services. Chaos Technical Services. 
Don't sound so excited about it. (laughs) (laughs) Woo! (laughs) Speaking of repairs. We are the sister company to Canas Tech. Um, We do the repairs on uh, low vision devices, uh, uh, reading machines uh, for libraries, braille printers, and pretty well anything in between. We can be found at uh, www.chaostechnicalservices.com. Joining us now is Richard Harlow, blindness advocate and artist. Good morning, Richard. Good morning. Can you hear me? I can hear you just fine. Yep. Awesome. Well, listen, we want to thank you so much for taking some time out of this Monday morning to talk to us. Thank you very much. It's my pleasure. So, geez, where to start? Um, You are a man of many talents, it seems. I guess a modern renaissance man. <laughs> <laughs> Clearly. Uh, but why don't we step back now? You you lost um, your vision fairly late in life. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about, about what that was like and, and how it all happened? Sure. Um, well, uh, in 2009, my vision in my right eye started going a bit blurry. And at the time, I was going to Emily Carr University. Um pretty prestigious art school on the West Coast. And by, oops. and by about Thanksgiving that year, I lost most of my central vision in my right eye. And uh, doctors were thinking that it was just stress. Um, it wasn't just stress. It actually was a super rare optic nerve disease called LHON, uh, Libra's hereditary optic neuropathy. And it took about six months to go from having perfect 2020 vision and, and getting straight A's in my arts classes to now being legally blind and having to use a white cane to get around um, by Around spring, I lost a significant amount of my vision in my left eye as well, and had to actually leave art school for medical uh, reasons uh, because I was going through MS treatment um, because they thought I, it could have potentially been MS at the time. And um, because I was willing to take anything to be able to fix my visual acuity and make it go back to normal. Um, They gave me a dosage of uh, steroid treatment and chemotherapy at the time, as well as going through pretty much every test and going through the ringer to try and figure out what was actually going wrong with me. And it took a specialist in Vancouver to be able to uh, figure it out. He was almost retired at the time And so he had seen my disease before. And once, once he was able to kind of like figure it out, what was going wrong with me, um, it felt a lot better. It felt like I was validated for my, my condition and validated for, for what was actually going wrong. Um, as opposed to, uh, a couple doctors thinking that it was just stress just because they couldn't figure it out. And um, so I had to drop out of uh, art school and I went back to school for psychology and then uh, to go back to 
just a couple of years ago, I, I took up visual arts again, and now I'm a professional artist. <laughs> yeah, LHON, you know, it's interesting. We, we talked to uh, Maria Johnson, yeah. who runs a, runs a blog. Um, I, think, I think she's in California somewhere, um, who, who had the same, you know, similar experience, except she lost her, her vision in her 40s. Yeah. Um, and you know, she's a, she's a really big LHON advocate, uh, trying to spread the word about the disease because, um, it can be so rare that, um, a, a lot of, you know, practitioners and stuff aren't able to pick up on it. Yeah, um, and exactly. That, and then that must be really frustrating as somebody who, you know, you're going through this and, you know, your, your doctors literally can't find a reason for, for why it's happening. It's like trying to solve a murder mystery and not having any idea how it's happened, but you know, it happened and it was, it was probably the worst part of the whole thing was not actually knowing why. Um, it was really scary. And, and there were times that I didn't know how I was going to get through this or if I was going to lose all my vision completely. And like, that's the other thing with LHO and there's such a huge scale of what can happen. You can have spontaneous recovery. You can have um, a bit of damage and lose a significant portion of your vision, or you can go completely blind. And like, that's just how it is. And of course it has no cure either. So that's stressful in itself. Um, it's nice that there's other people out there trying to spread the word about LHO and because it affects about 300 million people, according to the last checked statistics. And yeah, that's exactly why optometrists wouldn't exactly figure it out as easily because it's so rare. And, and then the, the process of that is, is different. I mean, for, for every person that goes through vision loss, uh, you know, it's, it's a very different experience, I, I'm sure. And, you know, especially depending on there, there's so many different degenerative eye conditions out there. Yeah. Um, in reading your story, I, I find that that's the really important takeaway. And, and the thing that we, that I really would like to talk to you about is, is that process, because I feel like for other people who are going through vision loss, it's so important to hear stories like yours, um, that they can sort of latch onto and and realize that there there's life after vision loss that yeah that you know there there's there's hope one of the things that i like to tell people is sometimes with with getting a disability later on in life no matter what that disability is at the moment it feels like it's the end it feels like you're not going to get through it potentially. Um, there's a lot of unknowns, but going blind, I feel like it wasn't the end necessarily. It was just like the beginning of a new chapter. And it took me quite some time to actually wrap my head around that. But it actually like made me a better person, probably. Like at the time, I had a job lined up to work at a video game company. I'm doing a whole lot more rewarding work now 
as like a disability rights activist, as as an artist, as a like motivational speaker, and and all this, then working at a like video game company, right. you know, and and now there's stories coming out at video game companies how the working conditions are absolutely horrible. So yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's it doesn't sound like it's a great industry to be in at the moment. Yeah. But it's um, but but the other thing that's interesting about about your story is that and and it makes it it must have been made it so much harder is that you were in the middle of going um to art school and here yeah. you are you know you you're diagnosed with this with this um degenerative eye condition. I mean that must have been a huge blow and and really hard to come back from. It was uh I I will admit, like, I had a bit of depression at the time. And it, it was probably one of the most difficult things in my life at the time because of, like, the chemotherapy, because of the steroid treatment that made me rather irritable. Um, I mean, that happens to everyone. And then on top of that, the, the unknown. <laughs> yeah. um, I picked up a white cane fairly quickly, though and wanted to learn how to adapt um, because I wanted to be able to still live my life as best as I could. I'm When it was happening, I was about 20 years old. And so I wanted to be able to uh, live my life as, as I chose. At the time, I had doctors and some people saying what I could and could not do. And, and I didn't pick up a paintbrush or do art for about six years after I lost my sight. Um, the first time I picked up a paintbrush was about uh, a, a year after. And I can remember just crying because I was comparing my art to what I used to be capable of. And the thing that really helped me also be able to actually do art again was studying art history. So back, like studying all the greats. When I, right before I lost on my side, I, I traveled through Europe with one of my best friends from Germany. Um, and that experience really was an amazing experience being able to see every, see the world before I wasn't really able to see it as clearly and see all the paintings that I studied in my textbooks. And I think that was a really rewarding experience because it's what helped me grasp my new idea of my art. Every artist has gone through a period in their life where they change their style, change their technique, uh, change things up. And instead of thinking of what I used to be able to do and comparing my current work with my old work um, and having that as like the standard, I, I had to change the, my thought and viewpoint to this is my new style. This is a new unique thing that I'm trying to accomplish. And I shouldn't compare myself to what I used to be able to do. Um, something that happens to a lot of artists is they compare themselves to another artist, but no other artist has the same experience as that person. So that was also something that was really helpful. So during that six years, 
did you just think you would never return to painting or was it something that you thought, well, you know, I, I might return to it when I'm ready? Um, I honestly never thought I would do painting again or arts, but the thing was like, I had it in my head, um, like from a doctor saying that I wasn't going to be able to do art again. And so mm. that, that was something that was validated in my, my own head that I didn't necessarily challenge that viewpoint. I wish they wouldn't say things like that. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's, it's like, it puts you into a little box and you're now a glass doll that, that is blind and you can't do anything because someone has told you that you can't leave this box. <laughs> like yeah. it's, it's very limiting. Um, it's the same sort of thing. Like in the States, uh, I saw a statistic around 90% of blind people, well, blind students don't do PE, don't do physical education. Yeah. Like that's, you're just taking something away from that community. And so when, yeah. when someone tells you, oh, you're never going to be able to do art again. Well, F that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, shortly after I had lost my sight, I, I started kind of questioning what I could and could not do. And so I found that I'm able to do like rowing. I've been able to do a rigor paddling. I've been able to do uh, Brazilian jiu-jitsu for five years. <laughs> I, I know how to kick butt. <laughs> um, I've been able to do modeling, um, stand-up comedy i've hosted live shows i've done uh, public speaking and presentations um, to large communities of people to talk about disability and the arts and, and vision loss i've been able to to travel like i challenge myself of what i'm capable of doing because i don't want to be limited to what anyone thinks that blind people are capable of doing. And for me, um, it's kind of rewarding when people say you don't look blind <laughs> because that means that you're challenging that stereotype right. and um, changing people's perceptions of what blind people are capable of. Talk to us a little bit about um, what, what kind of support you had in those sort of the, in those early years where you, were you a client of the CNIB at all? Like, did you get, did you get O&M training or did you kind of navigate that stuff yourself? Um, the CNIB was probably the biggest help at the time. I had a mentor that, that really coached me through um, a bit of my depression and, and anxiety and such that I had um, when I was going blind. And then I also got some white cane training and, I guess rehabilitation training in the sense of being able to cook and and navigate my apartment and do normal things. So that was very, very helpful. And the CNIB um, has been a great organization for me to be a client with, but also uh, to volunteer with. So I've now been giving back to the community that I'm a part of as a mentor, as an ambassador, and I'm on their uh, BC and Yukon division board. So I'm, I'm, I'm kind of fascinated with, with, with 
the process that you went through. Um, and I yeah. think, and I think it's an important message. Um, like I said, for other people who may be listening to this, that may be going through something similar. Was it, did it sort of hit you all at once where you're just like, you know what? F everything that people are telling me about what I can or can't do. I can just, I'm just going to try everything. Or was it a, or was it more of a gradual process where you were like, well, I'm going to try this. And then that kind of worked. And then you thought, well, you know what? I'm going to try stand up comedy. And then, oh, I'm then I'm going to get back into, into painting. Like it, it was definitely a gradual process. Like I, I had never done like skiing for instance in my life. And, and I had a friend of mine say like, oh, that would be kind of dangerous. But then I was like, well, how dangerous would it be? You know, <laughs> like what's the worst that could happen? I guess death, but realistically, <laughs> what's the worst that could happen? Maybe I fall on my butt a few times and eat snow. Um, not that big of a deal. And, and so I went out like downhill skiing and cross country skiing with a uh, university like trip um, through the outdoor rec program. And that was an, a pretty awesome experience because then I was able to go with a friend and, and be supported by the other people. And that was a really rewarding experience. It, it was just, it was a gradual process of, of me questioning, all right, so I've been told that blind people aren't able to do this thing. Okay, so f that. Um, how can I do it? <laughs> <laughs> right. Now talk to us a little bit about, about the painting. Um, because, and, and how your, your style changed and like sort of how, what, what, what style were you sort of before you started to lose your vision and, and what style were you after? So previously, I, I guess I had a bit of a more, um, uh, impressionistic, uh, I, a lot of realism, um, yeah, like a, I was able to do paintings that were semi-realistic, um, very, very true to life. Um, being able to paint like the human figure, perfect skin tones, perfect, you know, proportions and everything. And so now um, my artwork is influenced a lot by my activism. Um I like to say like my activism fuels my art and my art fuels my activism. Um, and I say that because I use the universal design principles that I've studied um, to help people with high, uh, low vision. So like high contrast colors, right. um, things like uh, tactile um, qualities that I invoke in the canvas as well. So I've, I've kind of taken bits of my community. So the high contrast kind of color combinations and using tactile principles. Like when I'm trying to use my stove, I have bumps on, on certain numbers. Well, I kind of like transferred the idea of um, using tactile sensation on the paintings to then do a tactile painting that invokes different sensations. Okay. Um, there are different textbooks out there that, that have diagrams for the blind that have like embossed diagrams, for instance. Sure. 
And there are also books out there for autistic children where the books themselves um, invoke different textures on each page um, that they can feel. And I guess I'm using a combination of the two in my paintings. So for instance, if I'm doing like a, a landscape image and there's a lot of sand on the beach or something, I make that sand actually feel like gritty um, when you run your hands over it. Mm. And say if I'm using um, like water in the image, then I then I can make it really smooth and, and make it so you can feel ripples in the water or bubbles or waves. Um, being able to build up vegetation to actually make the trees feel like actual like foliage and such. So I'm trying to invoke different textures in, in the painting. This is a reaction to actually the art world and current um, curatorial practices. The issue that I also had when I was going to art gallery shows um, shortly after I lost my sight was that the art gallery scene is actually one with massive barriers for a lot of people with disabilities. And I was able to identify those barriers from my universal design um, principles that I was able to study. So usually paintings are supposed to be hung at a standard eye height for the average person. And if you're in a wheelchair, or if you're, you're a child or, or somebody like with dwarfism, eye height is a lot smaller for you. Right. And so I've noticed in some galleries where they have like a, a sculpture high up on a pedestal. And if someone was in a wheelchair sitting down or, you know, anything like that, they, they wouldn't be able to see that sculpture to its full degree. And so I require galleries to always lower my paintings um, to uh, a better like sitting height right. or, or, or uh, a height where a child could actually touch the painting because I'm challenging the viewpoint that paintings are not supposed to be touched in the gallery scene. And I actually encourage people to touch the painting. It has a, another um, benefit for someone to be able to touch it is um, it invokes a more vivid memory when they think back to that painting because you're using multiple senses when you're interacting with that painting versus just looking at it and then walking to the next painting. You're actually taking the time to feel it. And then you have a more, I guess, intimate uh, conversation with the painting when you're doing that versus just staring at it and going to the next one. You know, and that's a, you know, that's a perfect metaphor for universal design in general, because it's a, you know, you're, you're talking about an experience that benefits, say, somebody who is visually impaired or somebody in a wheelchair, but it's also going to benefit somebody who's able-bodied as well, because, because it enriches that experience. It adds that tactile sensation to, you know, the other senses that are going on. Yeah. It provides multi-sensory reinforcement. That's right. Exactly. And... I, I I really hate when I go to an art gallery and I am not allowed to actually be able to access the gallery to my visual needs. So when I say that, um, I've had security guards yell at me for standing close to a painting. And for me, 
to be able to still experience the painting like everyone else, I need to stand closer to it. Right. But most galleries don't understand when I have a white cane in my hand, they don't see that. They just see a guy who's standing close to a painting. And so when I've talked to groups of, of people um, that are blind, a lot of people don't even bother going to an art gallery because yeah. the first thing they think of, well, it wouldn't be accessible to me. Right. But now we actually have some, some galleries across Canada that are trying new things. Um, I know at the Vancouver Art Gallery, they have a new program where blind people are able to go, I think, on a Saturday of every month. Uh, they have a schedule where they will actually guide you through the gallery space and um, do a guided tour for, for those blind people where they can actually touch and feel certain sculptures. Um, they have paintings described to them. And this is a cultural, like, this is cultural education right there. If, if you're not making visual arts or the arts accessible to a large demographic, that demographic isn't going to be able to, um, it's, it's so exclusionary. Yeah. Right. Like it's, it's in a way like segregation, um, to, to people with disabilities. So, so now I have to put a plug in for Vocali who, right. uh, that was, <laughs> that was done in coordination with Vocali. I sit on the board for Vocali. So, uh, yeah. shout out to Vocali and, uh, Steph Kirkland, our executive director for helping make that happen. Yes. Big props to you guys, because this is something that should just be standardized for a lot of galleries across yeah. Canada. I went to the Ontario art gallery and there, they had no idea the amount of barriers that were in their gallery when I spoke to one of the curators after I, I walked through. And I think it's just a matter of being able to have these difficult conversations with people about what accessibility looks like and how it can be put into reality. Because everyone should have access to the arts. Everyone should be able to have access to different cultural events. Um, and we should be treated like not second-class citizens in, in these realms. It's, you know, it's, it's so frustrating and, and so many attitudes need to change um, at, at, a, at a bunch of different levels. Um, and, you know, we're, we're making slight progress here and there, but um, it, like, I, I not, and not only in the able-bodied community, I, mean, I think, you know, able-bodied people would, would, would listen to this and go, well, it's an art gallery. Of course, it's not accessible for blind people. There's, you know, blind people can enjoy art and they, they just, and, <laughs> yeah. and the trouble is, is that, there's probably a lot of people in the visually impaired community that share that same opinion because that's what's been drilled into their heads by, you know, your, even by your society and yeah, even, even by their own doctors, like you said, you yeah. know, your, your own doctor told you that, you know, this was just something you were never going to be able to do. So that, that attitude needs, needs to change. Like it, people need to understand that, that they're, they're the only barriers that are in place are the ones that, people are putting in front of you. Yeah, exactly. Um, there are so many tools out there now that have been able to 
like destroy all those barriers for me in different galleries. Like uh, I have different apps on my phone that will read out um, text on the wall. Um, when I take mm -hmm. a picture of it, I have an app on my phone that will actually scan the painting and look up information online about that painting, including like the description and, and right. the painter and when it was done and location and all those great pieces of information. I have an app on my phone that that's, can allow me to just be able to see the painting a little bit easier through magnification. Apps are really like technology is the biggest equalizer and, and it's almost getting to a point where the only barriers out there are the ones that other people put us in, yep. but also the ones that are in our own mind. Yeah. We, well, those are the worst ones. Those are, and the, yeah. to be honest, those are the hardest ones to overcome. Yeah. Um, you know, and that's why education and advocacy are, are so important. So, yeah, I've I've always felt that education is the biggest thing that will um, eliminate ableism, discrimination, yeah. and ignorance. Like ignorance is not a bad thing. Ignorance just means that you're not educated on a certain topic, or you've never interacted with someone from that demographic. That sometimes happens to people where they've never interacted with like a blind person in their yeah. life. Maybe they grew up in a small town and just wasn't the case. Right. Um, and and I have a, a job that I just got um, more recently. It's an artist in residency through uh, University of British Columbia. And I'm actually going to be going into some of the high schools in Vancouver and teaching kids about disability and visual arts. And this is a, a first in Canada, actually. Like mm. this, this has never happened before where artists with disabilities are going into the classroom, teaching kids about like their field of study there. So we have people that are, are songwriters. We have people that are actors. We have people that are multi-talented, but all, all these artists have disabilities. And so we're going into the classroom and, and we're having those frank discussions with kids, being able to help remove uh, misconceptions that, that kids get at a very young age and being able to, to make the classroom more inclusive um, for other students with disabilities in the classroom, but also um, help the able-bodied people understand the challenges that the disabled people go through on a daily basis. And I think this might help the next generation be able to be more productive and, and be more inclusive in society. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that those, you're absolutely right. Um, you know, it's, it's the young, it's the, it's the next generation that we, that we have to put the emphasis on. I mean, both, I would say in the able-bodied community, but also, um, within the, the, the disability community, we have to be teaching, um, kids that are, that are, um, you know, visually impaired, physically impaired, that there is no limit to what they can do given the right support system and, and the, you know, the right technology, but the, you know, they shouldn't be putting limiters on themselves. Yeah. Like I would have never thought that I would be <laughs> 10 years later down the road and I'm traveling across the country with my art. 
that that's never something that that would have entered my mind 10 years ago when right. I was going blind. <laughs> what else are you up to advocacy wise? Well, um, one of the, the things that you guys got in contact me about was the accessible icon. Oh yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that was just... a bit of a project that I did a few years ago um, to be able to change people's perceptions of what disability is and have a positive spin on it as well. So the accessible icon project was something that started in the United States. Um, and it was at first a guerrilla arts project where essentially they replaced the disability icon the stagnant image of a person in a wheelchair with a disembodied head on the back of a wheelchair. Right. And putting the person first. So we've changed our, our language around disability significantly over the years. Um, a long time ago, we used words like cripple, retarded, things like that. And still in the United States, retarded is a clinical term that is unfortunately used in modern day circumstances. But um, the icon has seen quite a bit of evolution over time. Um, the disability icon that we see today used to actually just be a wheelchair that was used mostly in hospitals mm -hmm. and in certain areas to be able to identify where wheelchairs could uh, be placed and could go through. Um, now it's more used to show accessibility, um, to show um, that the space is wheelchair accessible. Right. But we haven't kind of, we've changed our language around disability and how we represent disability to be a person first and disability second type of language. Um, so I'm a person with vision impairment, person with a disability, but I'm also a person with many other attributes that make me Richard Harlow. Right. And so um, when I saw this project, I wanted to bring it up to Canada. Um, I had some, some friends of mine at my university and we started up a, a disability awareness club at Vancouver Island University. And there is where we kind of, um, we use the icon as like our club logo. And, and then we loved it so much that we were like, well, why don't we just try and see if we can replace it on campus, every, on campus everywhere? And, and so we started a petition we wanted to petition the university to change the disability icon used to represent um, accessibility to the accessible icon. Um, and it took off. Everyone was supportive of it. Facilities, teachers, students, international students too. Um, we wanted to make sure that the image was still identifiable it uses the same sort of uh, color scheme. And it's not too different from the old icon, which was helpful. The accessible icon to describe for your audio listeners um, essentially is a person sitting in a wheelchair, but you actually see the outline of the human figure in the wheelchair itself. And the wheelchair is seen more as a tool um, than the main 
visual factor in the icon. Um, when you see the old icon, you can tell that the main part of the icon is the wheelchair itself. You can see the arm of the wheelchair, but no arm of the person. Yeah. You can see the back of the wheelchair, but no body in, in the wheelchair and no legs, um, which is problematic. And then with this new icon, you, you can see the person leaning forward to show movement. Yeah. You can see their arms like visibly looking like they're about to push the wheelchair and you can actually see their legs. Yeah. Um, There's a real suggestion of motion and, and an active sense of the icon that you don't get from that, from the the original. It shows that you're going places. (laughs) It sure does. They're hauling ass. Let me tell you. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And, and so it was adopted by the university um, first in Canada. And then we thought, Hey, why don't we just see if the city just starts using it? And so I started a, a campaign with um, a local organization to try and change the icon citywide. And city council absolutely loved it. So Nanaimo, um, little Nanaimo, became the first city in Canada to adopt the icon. Yeah. And then... I've kind of seen stories since then where other provinces have been pushing for it as well. And I actually helped um, mentor some some uh, young activists in Ontario to get it mm-hmm. pushed out there and uh, some people in Alberta. And so now the accessible icon is pretty much a, a image that's gained pushed nationally in different provinces to update the disability icon from the very limiting stigmatized icon that it is now to the accessible icon and in bc it's now the the icon if you get a placard um you you get that image on your placard (laughs) and it just and it just goes to show you you know it it small beginnings can result in in big things it's it's, it's awesome because I've heard the feedback from people in the community. It's meant to be a more positive image, um, more empowering for yeah. people with disabilities. I understand that it's not an image that represents all disabilities, but it's an improvement of what we had yeah. a few years ago. And, and that's where I'm kind of coming from with this. I'm able to identify with this image more because the image represents the person first um, and the disability second. And that's what I really love about it. I have a uh, tactile art show that's coming up uh, Ooh, okay. May 31st to uh, June 6th at UBC um, in Vancouver. Oh. Um, the whole show is with artists that are blind oh, um, wow. and that is going to be a great experience for anyone who pops by at the Hatch Gallery on campus. Okay. Um, the whole show is is challenging people's perception of disability. It's meant to be able to be fully accessible. So I'll have my tactile pieces in the show. And it's going to be a show that blind people are definitely going to be encouraged to attend. Um, the funny thing, when I've talked to to groups of people that are actually blind and talk about my painting, I usually get two groups of people. You get the people that are so 
amazed that this is a thing right um that they're like give me something i need to touch it <laughs> and then i get the other person which is like generally a grumpy old man who's, who's like an art show why the hell would i go to that i'm blind and then i hand them one of my paintings and they run their hands over and they're like oh my god <laughs> this is i can actually see it and and that's really rewarding for me to be able to hear those reactions from people and and yeah just making a space that has been so exclusive and only welcoming to privileged people essentially uh the gallery scene to now a welcoming place for any demographic that's awesome Hey, definitely send us information on that show. Um, I'll uh, I'll share it with the Vocali folks and uh, hopefully get you some some more people. Yeah, and for sure, awesome. maybe maybe once it's a little bit closer, we'll we'll have you on again uh, just to give it a, a good plug because it sounds like an amazing show. So one one more time, uh, when is it and where is it? Uh, May thirty first to uh, July sixth um, at the Hatch Gallery in Vancouver. It's on the UBC campus. Uh, well, hey, listen, thanks so much for taking some time out and talking to us. It was an absolute pleasure and uh, best of luck with the show. Thank you very much. And thank you for having me on. Um, I really enjoy listening to the show now that I've discovered it. And I love the work that you guys are doing, too. Uh, you're challenging people's perceptions of disability, just like me, and being able to educate the general population around disability which is very, very, very needed. <laughs> yes. Yeah, it is. I will thank you very much. All right. All right. Take care, sir. And uh, we'll talk to you again. All right. Cool. Okay, Richard. Have a great day. Take care. Well, I, you know, it's always interesting whenever we talk to somebody who is visually impaired that's doing a way more than I am. Yep. Yeah. <sighs> I mean, and we didn't even talk about uh, ju the jujitsu part. Mm -hmm. yep. The guy's been taking jujitsu for four years. Five, you said. Five years. Yeah. yeah. You uh, get it right, he can kick your ass. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> clearly. <laughs> but no, it's so great to hear. I mean, it, it's just, we need more of these stories uh, to get out there because it's so important for, for both the visually impaired community and able-bodied community to, to realize that... Uh, that they they shouldn't be limited on what other people mm -hmm. tell them that they can do, which is why it's so heartbreaking to hear that his you know that his doctor actually told him that. Well, I I even recall back when I had my accident, you know, I think doctors have a blanket statement saying you know, you're not going to be able to do what you used to do, you, you know, because they just don't understand. And, They're not educated either, right? You know, and Unless I guess you've it, been touched by you know somebody with a disability. Yeah, so they should just shut up. Yeah, you know, maybe you know, I guess I you know, I guess shut maybe <laughs> maybe there was a time where that was mm -hmm. maybe kind of true, or maybe there 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 never they, really was. They they, they maybe they just, they just think that you know it's it's grounding them in a reality so that they don't right maybe they think they're they're doing the right thing by saying things like that you know preparing them for the worst yeah. you know making sure that they're you know that they're completely prepared for I, this for the huge obvious the huge change mm -hmm. in lifestyle that needs to happen 
but, but you know what? Telling them what they can or can't do, eh, I just, it's just... It's just bad form. It is. You know, it, if you did it under any other circumstances, it would be it would be wrong. And it, it still is wrong. Mm -hmm. you yeah. Know, you, don't, you don't go to your kid and go, uh, you know, you, you failed your French test, so uh, odds are you're, you're never going to be able to learn a language. <laughs> yeah, that's true. You, you never approach life like that. And, and I don't know why a doctor would do that to somebody. It's just... You know, it's, well, and you've heard, you've mean. heard, you've heard multiple stories oh, sure. of, yeah. of, you know, not only doctors, I mean, you've had where teachers have told students, you know, look, you, oh, yeah, you I, shouldn't be pursuing that field mm -hmm. because. Yeah. I had a vision teacher try and tell me. A vision teacher. That I had to tell her student that that student couldn't become a teacher. <laughs> like. What? Why why, one, why not? <laughs> Two, why do you want me to tell this kid that? And three, what the hell are you thinking? You're a vision teacher. You're supposed to be encouraging this kid to, you know, reach his potential. Mm -hmm. You know, you don't set artificial barriers like that. It's, yeah. That's crazy. Unfortunately, that teacher is still an active vision teacher. Oh, is that right? Shame on you, unnamed vision teacher. Yep. Mm -hmm. Shame, shame. I really do like that new icon. The, the new oh yeah oh it's it's so good yeah it's it's much more dynamic and and uh, yeah it's a it's a good symbol you know and the fact that it's getting a little bit of pushback because it doesn't include all disabilities it's a little ridiculous how I mean you, how how what are you gonna have an icon how are you gonna represent all disabilities with one icon well I think the 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 correct answer to that is uh, actually it does because uh, that uh, guy in the wheelchair is also dyslexic you just can't see it. <laughs> <laughs> Well, we have to celebrate our little successes too, right? You know, we're finally starting to get emojis symbolizing, you know, a guy with a white cane, yep. person in a wheelchair. Mm -hmm. You know, we're in the 21st century now. Like, let's celebrate these successes and keep moving forward. That's okay. true. Yeah, that's true. You know. Keep it positive. Look at Ryan injecting some positivity right. into the podcast. Positive. <laughs> Ryan, hang on. That's where the cowbell. There we go. Good job, Ryan. Thank you. Thank you. Oh. I was saving that. <laughs> been saving it since last week yeah, three mark. years ago <laughs> have a little nugget of positivity mark it down on the calendar that's yep. quoted for the year that's right <laughs> yep uh hey ryan yes sir where can people find us as usual at atbanter.com they can also drop us an email at cowbell at atbanter.com Steve almost missed that. I, I, missed I that almost cue. did. Yeah, it was it was a little delayed there. <laughs> I saw the you can, uh, you can, take, that, you can take that delay out in post. <laughs> Monday, not enough coffee. Uh, what else? Where else can people find us, people? Oh, they can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Correct. All right. Well, uh, I think that is going to about do it for us this week. Thanks everybody for listening in. And we'll see everybody next week. Ciao. This podcast has been brought to you by Canadian Assistive Technology, providing low vision and blindness solutions across Canada. Find us online at www.canastech.com. That's C-A-N-A-S-S-T-E-C-H.com. Or call us toll free at 1-844-795-8324. For all your assistive technology servicing needs, call Chaos Technical Services at 778-847-6840 or find them online at chaostechnicalservices.com. Music provided by bensound.com. Whoa, look at that. Master of the one take.